0: I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org.
1: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
2: And a happy Sunday morning to you, coming to you live from Chicago, Illinois. Today is October 27th. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen.
3: Good morning.
2: And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. And today we are extremely thrilled to have, through the miracle of the phone, her books are The Last Samurai, which is considered, I believe, a canonical novel, the short story collection, Some Trick. Some Trick other story collection, Lightning Rods. Actually, this novel. is a novel. Novel, yeah, Lightning yeah. Rods. Helen DeWitt is joining us through The Miracle of the Phone from Vermont. Helen, are you with us?
4: Yes, I am.
2: Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about your work and about these books.
5: I'm happy to be here.
2: It's amazing. It's amazing. We are actually uh, quite big fans of your work, so if we could, uh, I'd like to start at the beginning because The Last Samurai, when it came out, made an enormous splash uh, in the publishing world. However... Uh, it has since become kind of a cautionary tale for what can happen to an author uh, when a publisher goes broke. Um, can you talk a little bit about the struggle you had with this book, uh, its success, and how finally you know managed to get reissued by New Directions? Because you've really been through the ringer with this stuff.
5: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, I, I feel as though I should have talked to a lawyer before... Uh doing this talk Uh (laughs) because because, uh, you know i'm it might be bad Mm -hmm. to describe your publishers as white-collar criminals (laughs) Uh (laughs) see i (laughs) you know i was told not to swear online Uh, i understand but anyway um so um you know i guess you know All I, you know, as a writer, all I really wanted was to find a publisher who would look after the book and produce it the right way, and and, and I was, there were all all kinds of issues that I was concerned about, such, um, you know, uh, idiosyncratic, um, you know, punctuation because of different voices in the book, and there was. Greek and Japanese and Old Norse that would require special typesetting, and then there were lots of permissions. So I was really, you know, being very nerdy and just worried about getting the book right and not about getting lots of money. <laughs> and so, and so, um <clears throat> tragically, <laughs> you know, uh, a uh, an indie producer had um optioned this book when I was in London, and she ha- was connected to um her, her sister was harvey weinstein's wife at the time, and her business partner was his business affairs person and so somehow um it's i mean i mean in some ways they were great in that they uh show you know, after my first agent didn't get the, could not find a publisher. and mm-hmm. um, uh they showed the book to Jonathan Burnham who was then at at the uh Talk Mirror and Wax books. So in some ways that was good. But and, and so then there was this furore where Jonathan took the book to the Frankfurt Book Fair. I mean, you know, this is like twenty years ago. Right. Was, I mean, man. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Time
5: goes by. Yeah. Um, And so, and it was this huge phenomenon, and, you know, Andrew Wiley was trying to get people to look at Salman Rushdie's new book, and everybody was in their, everyone was, people were in their hotel rooms reading my book, and everybody was so excited about the book. But um, somehow, you know, I, I couldn't use, I mean... I, I don't know what. Sorry, I'm talking. I'm not letting you get a
4: word in. No, not at
2: all. And I just wanted to say, by the way, if, for listeners, Dewitt is not exaggerating here. I, before we went on the show, I, I asked her if. I'd remembered seeing her on the cover of a British magazine that a mother who is also a novelist gets, and there was a picture of her, I think in front of like some Commodore or something, but it was writer, you know, scores quarter-million-pound contract. It was a real coup. You, you went to the, the Frankfurt Book Fair when this book came out. She, she's not exaggerating. This was a major worldwide story in a splash, so pl- yeah. please continue, on. This is not an exaggeration.
3: Yeah, we want to talk yeah. to you. We hear ourselves all the time, so. Yeah. Yeah, and so but, and so,
2: of Chris-
5: course, because, but I didn't have an agent here. You know, this deal was just done through, I mean, it was kind of done through people who had their own interest in uh, getting the book out there so that they could make their movie. And um, and so, I mean, so I, I, my, I would be told that, you know, I was the superstar, and the book had made all this money. And somehow that didn't... But none of that money was coming through to me. You know, I was just like, okay. You know, I thought, because I had all these other books that I was trying to finish, and I was so excited, I thought, oh, great, this is I've got all this money. I could finish all these other books. I couldn't use any of that money to actually write. All all I was doing was kind of scrabbling around... Um, Trying, you know, clearing permissions, uh, kind of, you know, I. Um, so by nature, I'm a bridge player rather than a poker player, mm-hmm. and so, and so to me, um, you know, if you've got a if you've got a, a, a contract, okay, what it, what it says in the text is just what you get, and so if it says you can they can't make any changes to the text without the author's approval that well this is legally binding and i didn't realize you know these are poker players
4: you know? <laughs> but,
5: so and so P, they would um they were just playing all these little games you know so i would keep trying to talk to my editor about you know try to see if there was anything that he was concerned about with regard to you know sh- um punctuation usually just kind of saying because it was um, um, the main the narrators the main narrator was an American who was living in Britain and so was kind of TS Eliot influenced narrator and then there was the um, the her, her son who didn't know who his father was and so yeah I mean so basically, you know we've got two narrators, both in Britain, and I was worried about whether this might cause problems. I was trying to discuss this with my editor just to make sure that there was nothing he was I thought we could discuss it. And so somehow weirdly, you know, he kept saying, "Well, maybe she, you know, the copy editor just you know minor, minor changes, nothing, nothing to worry about." And everybody kept saying there was nothing to worry about. And then suddenly, like the the copy editor just kind of whited out all of my markups and sent her results to the printer, and um, I was just going insane. Right. And and so and so it's like you know I mean I, I I totally get that you know if you're just if you're re, you know if you're out there in the world and you hear about somebody getting a quarter of a million pounds, which would be you know would have been Let's say four hundred thousand dollars. No, know, um, you know that sounds great, but you're not. But if you're a writer, you know you want to get the you do you just want to get the book right and also finish your other books. And somehow, even though everybody was telling me what a star I was, they were still playing all these little games behind the scene, which I you know I think you know not to be you know not to be unkind, but I think possibly is. Harvey Weinstein's M.O. Okay, so I'll stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of word it. No, it's okay. fine. And this is great. Uh, and
3: it's, you know, it's you're pointing out something that a lot of people don't see all the time. The publishing in, in, industry can be a ruthless cutthroat business like any other entertainment form. Right.
2: And it's interesting because, I mean, you, uh, the book, I mean, for people who are not familiar with The Last Samurai, as you mentioned, it has a lot of typographical eccentricities, and there's a lot of different voices, and there's a lot of different languages. And it reminded me, um, I, this is not an apples to apples comparison, but I remember reading uh, Gertl Escherbach* by Hofstetter way back in high school, and I believe he insisted on typesetting his own book. Because You yeah,
5: had the right idea! Yeah, <laughs> had I put Had yeah, I put that.
2: Yeah, so I was thinking of that when I was reading your book because I, I you know, when I had, uh, I, I actually came to the book cold, Jeremy had given it to me, I had not read it, and I had not read your fiction before a couple weeks ago, and I, I got about, you know, 30 or 40 pages in and I was like, man, I can, I can see a copy editor going absolutely <coughs> insane, Bonkers, <yeah>. but, but, <laughs> But, you know, this is just for people that aren't aren't aware. The Last Samurai, so we should actually, you know, talk about the book, and we do have some readings of the book coming up, but this this really is a wonderful story because I think it, and I don't know this, but does it mirror some of your own experiences? Maybe not with a, a genius-level, you know, two-year-old pulling all the books out of the, the bookcase, but does it mirror some of your experiences going to Oxford? Did you mind that for, for some of the story in this? Uh,
5: well, I, I did go to Oxford, and I guess... Um, <laughs> I think that I. I mean, I think my the thing that kind of triggered the, my idea for the book was, you know, I, I had a lot of problems with my dad, and suddenly I thought, you know, we don't pick our parents, we don't we don't get to pick, and you know, I was going through this very bad. You know, I thought, you know. If I had been because I am not a moron and so if I had been able to pick, I would certainly have been able to I would certainly have picked somebody better than you. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> at the same time, um the um my David Levine is now my ex, but this this was somebody I met when I was um a graduate student at Oxford and he had So he had best Jewish mother in the world, Norma Levine. Let's get that out in the world. Norma Levine, best <laughs> Jewish mother in the world. Okay. And so she taught, she, she did all the, I, see, I was, I'm, I converted to Ju- Judaism, but, you know, I was not, I was a wasp. Okay. to start out with and so you know, norma was teaching you know she taught david at the age of two from flashcards, and you know she taught herself to read greek so that she could help him with his exams and she i mean she was just so amazing and <laughs> i guess um I, I i i guess the thing that struck me was i mean but But, you know, I mean, there were all kinds of things. I mean, even though she was the best Jewish mother in the world, there were all kinds of things that she couldn't teach him. And I just thought, you know, but he was so brilliant as a small child. Um, You know, if if he had been able to, I mean, I'm sure he could have learned Greek at the age of four, like John Stuart Mill, had he had a different parent or a different educational system. And so this was a kind of, I was just thinking about, how, I don't know. I don't know how to put this. Um, what people think they're capable of doing is very much shaped by, you know, the where they start, and so, you know, if if you start in some other environment and you know, you might think that, I don't know, Greek or Hebrew or Arabic, you know, this is very exotic and this is very... I, you know, oh wow, somebody who knows that these languages must be very amazing without realizing that actually you yourself might have that capability and so I was trying to somehow insert into the book this this, um, way of changing people's... it, It wasn't so much about, okay, this little kid is a genius. It's what might I have been able to do if I had been shown something very, you know, if I had suddenly realized how easy it is to get to grips with Greek or Japanese, something like that?
1: Or what could I still do? Even, I mean, that's what yeah, I exactly, thought. Man.
5: That too. That too. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I want to come back to
2: John Stuart Mill in a second too, because that's a great, interesting subtext that runs through the book.
3: I just had a quick question, Helen. I'm not familiar with who David Levine is. Can you can you uh, explain to me who he is and the listeners?
5: Yes, yes. I and I would like to do that. So David Levine is now professor of classics at NYU, and so I mean, I mean I, you know, not to be too. Um, but, I, I mean, it's it's kind of... Tra- I mean, David was the person who made me a writer. He introduced me to Kurosawa, to Mel Brooks, to um, statistics and bridge and poker and, you know, and Shunba. I mean, David Levine is the person who made me a writer, and he is now a professor of classics at NYU. And so any kid who is out there thinking about where to go to college I'm just going to mention the fact that the incomparable David Levine, son of best Jewish mother in the world, is um, now at NYU. And so normally we don't get that kind of, you know, normally when you're applying to colleges, you just go by the, what is it, the, this ranking of of colleges in the U.S. thing, U.S. news report. Yeah, sorry. Look, I went to Oxford. I'm out of it. But you know, But in America, people tend to go by these rankings, and you tend not to know that there is, you tend not to focus on someone who is absolutely brilliant, who is the person who transformed this writer that you admire into the writer that you admire. So I'm, I'm just, sorry. <laughs> this
3: is, oh, you don't have uh, to apologize. Anyway, I'm
5: just saying. So that's David. Well, David is brilliant. We Uh, actually
3: love listening to you because, like I said, we listen to each other all the time. I I have two things I want to mention. One is Jamie and Mike might argue that they have the best Jewish mothers in the world. I I don't know. I
5: want to meet them. (laughs) (laughs) I need a Jewish mother.
3: (laughs) They're both wonderful, I can assure you. And the other thing is, you know, you mentioned that Levine turned, you know, turned you on to Kurosawa and Mel Brooks, and that was. uh, I focused on Lightning Rods, which we'll get to later in the show, but which was. Loosely based on the producers, am I correct? Yes. And then Kurosawa, obviously the influence on the last samurai. So this guy was a huge influence on, on your work and
5: Yes. Absolutely.
2: Wonderful So you know Why don't we take a second here And we're going to listen To a segment From uh, The Last Samurai In fact it is where uh, the, the the main character Is trying to teach her son uh, Some of this stuff As always We want to thank Shanna Van Volt And Jamie Branch For providing the background music We'll be right back On I Need Four In about three minutes
0: I never meant this to happen Elle is reading Odyssey 5, he has read four books in four days. I would carry on from where I left off, but I have misplaced my notes. What I meant was to follow the example of Mr. Ma, father of the famous cellist, who I read somewhere started teaching yo-yo when he was two. Coupé, la difficulté, en quatre was his motto, which meant that he would reduce a piece of music to a number of very small, short tasks. The child was to master one task a day. He used the same procedure with Chinese characters, the child learning a character a day. By my reckoning, that makes two simple tasks, but you get the picture. I thought that this would be an enormous help to L for very little trouble to myself, and when he was two, I started him on flashcards. I think that the first simple task was supposed to be cat. No sooner had he mastered this simple task than he wanted to go on. He wanted every single word in his vocabulary on a cart. He sobbed, purple, 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 when I tried to stop before writing it down. The next day he started his first book, Hop on Pop by Dr. Seuss. No sooner had he started than he started to cry because he did not know hop and pop. I saw in a flash that the time required to teach a two-year-old workaholic by the look-and-say method would leave perhaps six minutes a day for typing. And so, doubting my ability to make ends meet on 55p a day, I hastily went over a few principles of the phonics system. He learned to say huh when he saw an H and puh when he saw a P. And by the end of the week, he could read as follows. Hop on pop the cat in the hat. I thought, it worked, it worked. He would sit on the floor, and when he found something interesting, he would bring it over to show me. Thunder of tiny feet, he had unearthed a treasure, yes, I would say, and he would produce from the page, oh joy, a thing of glory, the wonderful, and here was another find. What could it be? Could it? No, yes, yes, it was a cat. And he would pluck from the page one marvel after another until at last he could nonchalantly draw now a rabbit, now a dove, now a string of colored scarves from an ordinary empty black top hat. Wonderful, marvelous, wonderful, marvelous, cool. I was not getting as much work done as I had hoped. One day it occurred to him that there were quite a lot of other books on the shelves. He selected a book with pictures and he came to my side perturbed. The face on the Gouda Percha inkstand had a tale to tell. I explained Gouda Percha, inkstand, and tail. It is believed to be that of Neptune, molded to commemorate the successful use of the material to insulate the world's first submarine telegraph cable from England to France in 1850. And I said, no. I said, you know a lot of these words, don't you? And he said, yes. And I said, why don't you practice reading the words you know, and you can pick five words that you don't know, and I will explain them. I don't know how much of this deal he understood. He asked for Neptune, Molded, Commemorate, Successful, Material, Insulate, and Submarine. I explained them in a manner which I leave to the imagination. He read a few words that he knew and put the book on the floor. Then he went back for another book. What a delightful surprise. In, and, to, and our old friend, the, in Truth and Other Enigmas. Sadly, however, no sign of Guda Percha or Neptune. He put the book on the floor and I went back to the shelf. Twenty books later I thought this is not going to work.
1: And that was a selection from The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. Helen, we were talking earlier about um, Last Samurai, your work in general being a testament to what what you can do if you, if you put your mind to it and take your time. And uh, I, I was reading some of the reviews of, of your work some trick and and inevitably all the reviewers went through the rest of your work and most of them talked about um a theme being the 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 loneliness of the intellectual and how hard it is to get along in a society that's mostly anti-intellectual but i didn't i didn't i never got the feeling from any of your work that uh these characters were people to be pitied as, as uh you know, outcasts and misfits because they were hyper intelligent.
3: Sounds like critics. That probably didn't read the book all the way through. Possibly. Didn't. Possibly.
1: <laughs> I mean, one of them was James Wood, so I'm sure. I, I would I'm sure James, James Wood's read it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but to me, it was. There's a lot of play with perceptions. I f- for people, and I come across this with people who aren't big readers. When I'm when I'm reading a book and I start to talk about what it's about, um, you get this feeling that they think you're your name dropping or you're trying to sound smart for the sake of sounding smart and the same thing can happen when you're reading an author when there are epigraphs or mentions of other titles and to me, when I read your work, those are like little those are like little breadcrumbs that are being left behind for me so so I can pick them up and pursue what I want to pursue and learn what I want to learn. Is that something that perception of outside or something that invaded your work and then you kind of had to take it prisoner and put it back into the work? Or is it something that you've just always thought about?
5: Well, I think that, I I mean, it's, I mean, mean, the the strange thing to me is, you know, I sort of feel that, I mean, it sounds so pompous to say, I I don't think the the book was ahead of its time, but the thing is, you know, this was, so I was writing this book in like the mid-90s, and so this was a lo- and so this was a long time before um, I don't know. I mean I think that, you know I I do think you know the internet changed everything oh, yeah. because it is this sharing economy and, and but and the thing and it's it's very interesting to me you know I was reading Gretchen McCulloch's because internet and so it's she,
4: she,
5: you know, if you're online, you know, basically you're always linking to other things. And this is like you being generous. It's not like saying, you know, you, it's very different from footnotes. You know, it used to be that, you know, I mean, I, look, I can remember this only too well. Trying, you know, trying to get evening jobs, you know, jobs that started at six. Because um, the British Library was, you know, it was, you know, it was open during business hours, (laughs) you know. And so if you had a daytime job, you couldn't also go to the British Library and read things that you needed to look up. And suddenly, you know, so with the Internet, suddenly, um, I mean, it's, first of all, it's an act of generosity to link to something that you thought was interesting but also the person who is if they want to follow that link you know they i mean you know it doesn't matter what their office hours are they can you know you can you can always kind of click on the link and follow it up if you want to and so it's it's not really about gamesmanship it's about sharing you know it, it and, and so this this was a book. You know, this book was written before that, but nevertheless, I think that there was this idea of that. Um, you know, it's it's not really about showing people up. It's just wow. You know, here is this amazing thing that you might not have known about. As it might, I mean, in the in the book, of course, there are quotations from books. So you've got things like um Gazinius Hebrew grammar as it might be or um or um a book on aerodynamics. Yeah. But it's it's the same principle, this idea that it's not about that I don't I don't know how I don't know how to put this exactly. You know, it it's being genuine. You don't you, Gen-
1: don't
5: you don't it's it's as if you, and you might not know that you were the type of person who was capable of being wildly excited <laughs> by... Oh, yeah, that's totally my right experience as a reader. You've got yeah. this great quote, but of course, it you know, books make it more complicated. You know, you have to clear permissions, it's more complicated. But still, I think that, um, you know, so to me it was not, it was, so of course, In La Samurai, you know, you've got this little kid who's surrounded by the, you know, all the books of this parent who has been madly acquiring things like uh, Ptolemaic Alexandria by Fraser, Um, you know, uh, or all the Oxford classical texts. You've got this little kid in that little room. This is this very physical world. But actually, it's—it's. It's, I mean, to me, it was. Um, I feel as though the internet has kind of opened our eyes to the fact that people—people people don't know how. You know, if you were interested and obsessed by something, there is no limit to how much time you want to spend learning about it. So, I mean, like, I love language log. Is just you know, I is a. A linguistics blog that I read on pretty much a daily basis, or Language Hat, or Andrew Gelman's um, blog about statistics. I, you know, no, no newspaper could ever publish extensive piece, pieces pieces on statistics every single day, or pieces on linguistics every single day. But suddenly we've got the internet where you can be completely obsessed, and and I, I guess. Little Ludo. I mean, of course, he looks precocious in a world where a school doles out what it thinks it's appropriate for you to learn. But actually, we we don't have educational systems that allow people to be obsessed. And actually, obsession is maybe maybe this one of the things that makes you smart, and good at a particular thing. Okay. So I'm, I'm well, well, it's interesting that you mentioned the internet.
1: Um, Sorry. We, we all babble. That's part, part of the Part the of the course, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned the internet because I was thinking while reading some of your newer stories that involve computers or computer technology or coding, you know, I have a few friends who, who are in the computer tech industry, and you know, even though they don't know each other, they share this kind of language that's outside of technical jargon and phrases like, uh, imposter syndrome or, (laughs) or going down rabbit holes. And, and these, these are the anxieties that, that exist in that world of, of pursuing learning and, and appearing learned and getting jobs and, and, uh, you know, gaining the confidence of others in the workplace, um, or, or just in general, um, have you, have you come across those phrases? Do you, do you struggle with those things?
5: Well, I guess, um, so, of course, <laughs> having read um because of the Internet, you know, I realize now I'm old. <laughs> I'm old. But so I, I can remember, for example, reading, um, discovering, you know, I can't even remember how this happened, but I discovered Joel Spalsky's blog, um you know, years ago, may, you know, maybe ten years ago and so and, and Spolsky is like um, you know um, he's, he's, he's the founder of Fogbugs and but he also had this amazing blog about things like what what a um, what a company should do to attract good programmers, and then, and see, this is, <laughs> sorry, sorry, this is how I know I'm old because I can actually remember um, when um, Spalski had the idea. You know, there, there was this idea that maybe you could have um, some kind of for, uh, forum where pe- where tech Programmers could ask questions and answer questions and and this seemed so um, you know, so he's working with Jeff Atwood and it seemed so <laughs> it seemed so remote and improbable. And now of course Stack Overflow is like this amazing um, resource where people can not only get answers to their questions, but also build reputations. And and now, of course, I mean, see, if you're trying to program, if you're trying to get around some technical problem, you always go to Stack Overflow. And so I guess... (sighs) I've forgotten your question. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Sorry, but, we we but, actually should but, take a
2: break right now because we've got to remind people okay. of what radio station they're listening to, and the FCC likes us to do that. Helen, can you stick around with us for another half hour?
4: Absolutely. Beautiful. We're gonna, thanks, Helen. Helen,
2: we're going to come right back to you. Folks, we're going to hear a couple things from our underwriters, and then we're going to hear another sample from The Last Samurai. We'll be back. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. It's I-94. <laughs>
0: If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com.
4: 14
0: May. Today was a real false alarm. I was practicing my Japanese characters when all of a sudden I noticed that Sibylla was looking at my library books. I held my breath and watched her. After a while, she picked up Danziger's travels and started turning the pages, and then she went over and sat down. She looked at it with a very sad expression and read the pages here and there, sighing from time to time. At one point, she said, Isfahan, under her breath, and then without even looking up, she said ironically, don't leap to conclusions. I said, why won't you tell me who it is? She said, because he doesn't know about you. I said, why didn't you tell him? She said, because I didn't want to see him again. I said, why didn't you want to see him again? She said, I don't want to talk about it. Maybe he was about to set out an expedition when they met. He had raised all the money for the expedition and if she told him about me, he would have had to give her the money. But she knew his heart was set on the expedition so she didn't tell him. 15 May. Sibylla got mad at me today because I asked a question about my father. All I did was ask if he knew any languages. She looked at me and said, I want you to hear something. She had been typing, but now she got up and said we had to go to the library, even though we had just been there yesterday. We went all the way to the Barbican, to the music library, and she asked if they had anything by Liberace. They said they didn't. Sibylla said this couldn't wait, so we took the circle line to King's Cross, and then we took Piccadilly line to Piccadilly Circus, and we went into Tower Records. They said Liberace wasn't easy listening, so we went up to easy listening. They had a lot of things by Liberace, but the cheapest was a cassette for £9.99. nine pounds ninety-nine. Nine pounds ninety-nine! Exclaimed Sibilla, holding it in her hand. It breaks my heart, but it must be done. She bought the tape, and we went home. When we got home, Sibilla put the tape in the tape player. It was quite old-fashioned music, and before each piece, the performer would make a few jokes to the audience. The whole time it was playing, Sibilla watched me. When it was over, she said, "What do you think?" I said it was rather old-fashioned, but he played the piano quite well. Sybilla didn't say anything. She went to a drawer and took out a postcard. It was a picture of some Greek girls painted by Lord Leighton. What do you think of this? She said. I said it was a picture about ancient Greece and they were playing ball. Anything else? She said. I said it was quite good the way you could see the wind blowing because of the way he had painted their togas. Then she got an old magazine out of a drawer. She opened it to a page and said, read this. So I started reading. At first, I thought maybe it was something my father had written, but it wasn't about travel. What do you think, she said. I said it was rather boring, but I supposed it was quite well written. Sybilla put the magazine on the floor, she said. You will not be ready to know your father until you can see what's wrong with these things. I said, when will that be, she said. I don't know. Millions of people have gone to the grave admiring them. I said, Well, why don't you tell me what's wrong? She said, She said, I won't say it's better for you to work it out for yourself. La formulae but. now. Even when you see what's wrong, you won't really be ready. You should not know your father when you have learnt to despise the people who have made these things. Perhaps it would be alright when you have learnt to pity them, or if there is some state of grace beyond pity when you have reached that state. I said, Let me see the magazine again. Then I read the whole article, but I couldn't see anything wrong except that it was boring. I looked at the picture again, but I couldn't see what was wrong. I wanted to listen to the tape again, but Sybilla said she could not stand to hear it again in one day. I said, It's not fair. Nobody else has to wait until they're old enough to know who their father is. She said, We should not elevate the fortuitous to the desirable. I said, How do you know I'm old enough to know you? She said, What makes you think I think you are?
2: Hey, welcome back, everyone. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. Mr. Michael Sack. Hello again. And that was a selection from The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. She is joining us by The Miracle of Phone. We also want to thank our reader, Shannon Van Volt, backed up this week by Jamie Branch. Thanks so much to the International Anthem Recording Company as well.
3: Helen, I want to talk about lightning rods. We've been focusing a lot on Last Samurai, and I think the next third of the show we'll talk about lightning rods and then get into some trick at the end but uh, one of the things that I I read about when I obviously read the book and I was reading some of the reviews and things which I found really interesting is many of the reviews that I read would say this is a satire of capitalism and the business world but in many ways I thought this novel was uh, a very feminist novel particularly the character of Rachel and so and y- y- you never see this mentioned and generally when there's a um, a novel it, you know it, and the premise of the, the book is that corporations have basically um, anonymous glory holes to satisfy their male workers so there won't be any sexual harassment charges um, which is not what I was expecting <laughs> when I picked up the book um, and it's, it's would would you agree with me when you say that it's a very feminist novel because I every review I me- read no one mentioned that
5: yeah I, I yeah exactly I, well in the sense look it was inspired by Mel Brooks springtime for Hitler you know <laughs> and so I don't know what uh, and so, and yeah, you know, Mel Brooks is a genius mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and and so the thing that interested me was that um, you know that he exploits the, you know the the nat- the sheer unutterable nastiness of Hitler for comedic purposes, and obviously I mean you know Mel Brooks is a Jew, <laughs> and he wrote Springtime for Hitler and. I was so blown away by that and and as a form you know, I was I started out as a classicist and I had a special subject in Aristophanes and it was only Oh, Aristophanes, when of course I watched the producers that I finally understood Aristophanes. And so, um, you know, I you know, I, I think there, there was, to me, there was something terribly appealing about this low-luck, you know, this this salesman, this low-luck guy who's trying to do well, and he's, you know, he doesn't, and, and you know, he suddenly sees a way to um, make some money out of his personal, private, sexual fantasy. <laughs> And um so, I mean, and, yeah, you know, I, I I did think it was feminist, but I thought it, you know, it was it was. Um, I mean, I am a feminist. I do <laughs> But
3: and I don't mean it's over. I, it's I, not. I it's love, not overtly feminist, but it's the 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 subconscious of the novel is overtly feminist. It's not in your face, but when you look exactly. at... Exactly! Yeah. No,
5: the thing that is, I mean, to me, the thing that was so lovely, which I just to- completely appropriated from Will Brooks, was the way that you have somebody rationalizing to himself about how he's going to exploit a system. Uh, I I just... Uh, so And so, you know, it was not... There was, I you know I I just want, you know when I was writing you know when I was writing it you know I was very I felt kind of uncomfortable about showing it to anybody and then I <laughs> <"Nee."> <laughs> you know no you have to you know look this is negative capability you have to do this you have to show this to people and Mel Brooks is a genius um,
2: so. Yeah. Did did um, this book? I mean, the, the funny thing to me is that this book comes out, and you obviously had um, a business relationship with Harvey Weinstein, who of course now is obviously at the center of the Me Too movement and is up on uh, federal and state charges of harassment. Did did any of that kind of filter through, maybe unconsciously, when you were working on this book?
5: No, no, because well, this is I, long before. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> before I started dealing with Harvey um I think that, um, in retrospect, ta- I mean, the thing is. So my editor at Talk, what was then Talk Miramax Books. Um, I mean, he passed on the book twice, and then he kind of, I mean, he kept ch- kind of sh- shifting and changing, and. You know, at one point, I mean, he kept saying no, no, and then suddenly he was offering like um, $300,000 or something for the book. And, and it was very, there was just this whole weirdness about it. Um, and, you know, it could be that, uh, okay, uh, I have no insight into whether Harvey thought this had anything to do with his own practices. I, you know, I have no idea. But, um, it, it, but the inspiration for the book was not, had nothing to do with Harvey. You know, that, the inspiration came a long time earlier.
1: I want to mention just a brief aside for people, because there, there are some really heady topics in, in, in Helen's work. Um, we, we discussed some of them earlier. You've, you've heard some of the bigger names Been talking about classical works. But, I don't think you're this person who is oblivious to the everyday life of, of everyday people. You've, And part of what these books are about are the enormous sacrifice that has to be made if you want to pursue learning seriously. You worked I don't know how many jobs while you, while you were writing The Last Samurai. Can you, t- can you talk about that balance, some of the jobs you worked? And was there ever one that made you think, huh, this is kind of comfortable. Maybe I shouldn't break my back. Trying to write and create and learn?
5: Um, no, I, 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 I mean, I did. I think that um, if, if you want to write a book, you know, if you think that possibly you might be able to do that, um, it's not really that, you know, you're, you're always scrabbling around looking for the job. That will leave the best time for writing, and so, um, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I had all kinds of jobs. I, mean, I worked at Dunkin' Donuts, Taco Bell. Uh, I worked uh, at, a, at a deli. I, um, you know, I was like a creme de la creme uh, <laughs> legal secretary slash Paralegal, and all I all I ever wanted was to find. I, I mean, I, I, all I ever wanted was to find something that would pay the bills and also leave time for writing. And it's actually, it's it's there. There are writers who fi- there are writers who find a way to make that work. I I mean, <laughs> I. You know sometime back I read an interview of George Saunders and it seemed like, you know, he had a job at one point and so he was back in some little corner and so then he he felt that he could um and and so he would Work on his writing when nobody was looking, or something mm-hmm. like that. But I couldn't do that. If I had a job, then I, I felt that I needed to actually do the work. And then this was terrible because people <laughs> people would be very. Um, I mean, uh, people would be so. If you were actually. I mean, you know, if you had a doctorate from Oxford and you had this meticulous attention to detail and you were working very hard, you know, people would be very keen to have you doing their work. Um, and so then it became harder and harder and harder to kind of clear time for writing. Yeah. And I never, I never, uh, I, uh, I, so, 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 I, I never, I never found. The key to that, because because I sort of think if somebody's giving you a job, you should just do the job. And um, so I'm am just I just sort of comment here because you know you are broadcasting from Chicago and this is the Midwest. You're broadcasting to the Midwest, and so I'm going to say I'm going to say that Midwesterners actually are. <laughs> They will get this. <laughs>
2: you know? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! We so, yeah. Oh, yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah. R3 no, I mean
5: seriously. It's like like a Midwest. Like, an you know, I mean, now you know because of being a writer, you know, I've dealt with all these New Yorkers, and so New Yorkers have no problem at all about um, like getting some job. You know, getting a job that pays, and then they don't actually do the job. And, And I I had no idea, (laughs) but I didn't do that. You know, even though I don't come from the Midwest, I just had this idea, if you have the job, you just do the job. And I, I do think that's a very Midwest, I mean, Midwesterners will not have a problem understanding that. But actually, if you're in, like, the publishing biz, it turns out this is this very radical. You know, it's like you're being uh, it's I don't a a radical what to say, idea, a Christian or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like what? Anyway, sorry, <laughs> I'm just rambling, but that's okay. The investors, you rule.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Where? What? Well,
5: you do rule.
3: Wait, Jamie and Mike and I have all had our share of horrible jobs, but I wanted to say, uh, Helen, while I was finishing up lightning rods, I, I envisioned um, Joe doing a TED talk <laughs> about about lightning rods like a very sincere uh uh ted talk so you know down the road we should uh we should hire somebody for a YouTube satire, TED Talk, having Jill uh, discuss the lightning rods. I, I just you should definitely
5: do that. All
3: right. Maybe we will. <laughs>
2: so we, we're running out of time here, Helen. We do want to get to your latest book or the latest release, which is Some Trick. It's a collection of short stories. And I, I had to wonder whether the story My Heart Belongs to Bertie, which features a very interesting interaction between a writer and his agent, was based a little bit on some experiences you might have had.
4: Um.
5: No, no, not exactly. It's just uh, so okay. So, just for, for listeners. Um, so, the writer is somebody who is a who's very logical and interested in programming, and somehow managed to get a book deal. Um, for I guess what would be a, a possibly a one a. Y a young adult
4: Mm
5: -hmm. book um, relating to robots. And so he just the writer just wants to deal with somebody who understands him and and he he likes Bertrand Russell and he thinks that because he's such a hotshot, because this book made a lot of money, you know, that maybe his you know, this is what an agent is for. An agent can find him somebody who can Uh, relate to his um, his brain. His uh, well, no, no, his
2: his 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 kind of way of looking at the Russell. world and his passion for that.
5: Yeah. So, so I mean, he feels comfortable with Bertrand Russell or the works of Russell, and he thinks, you know, that's what an agent for. You because this is what he needs for his talent. And the the agent is just not getting it, and um, I've I, you know I've never I mean well so I started out by saying this had nothing to do with my my life but actually um, you know I've talked to many so I am a huge fan of um, Edward Tufty's work on. That, um, Infoviz um mm-hmm. and I'm a huge fan of Michael Lewis's work on you know I I love uh, Moneyball and Blindside because so these are people who are interested in the connection between uh Data and human lives, and how, how you can, I mean, why this matters. Right. And so um, I thought, that I, I did think for a very long time that there must be somebody, because this was something I was so interested in, there must be somebody out there who would be willing to represent me and understand the things that I was interested in, and that turned out not to be true. And Hel-
2: so then I, I, I guess I did kind
5: of So it is. brought this into a story.
2: Helen, we do have to let you go because we are out of time. Our next show is coming up. We've been speaking today with Helen DeWitt. She Thank is you, the Helen. author of The Last Samurai, Some Trick. They're out now from New Directions, Lightning Rods, Helen, it was such a pleasure to have you. We're a big fans of your work. Thank you so much. Please keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you, Helen.
5: Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Guys,
2: next time I-94 will be back with Christine Sneed in two weeks and then Jack Jemka over at the dial for I-94. I'm Jamie Trecker. We'll see you next time.
0: I asked Sybilla whether she had seen Seven Samurai at Oxford. She said she had. I asked whether she had gone with someone. She said she couldn't remember. I said I'd met a man who'd seen it at Oxford with a girl whose name wasn't definitely not Sybilla. Maybe I did, said Sib. Yes, now I think of it. I wished I hadn't. It wasn't really his kind of thing, and he wanted to hold hands. In Seven Samurai, I ask you, was he good-looking? He must have been, said Sib. I made him go home afterward because I wanted to be alone. You can't do that with a plain man. They look so pathetic and uncertain. The best thing is to go to mediocre films with plain boring people and to brilliant films with beautiful, dazzlingly witty people. In a way, it's a waste when your attention is otherwise engaged, but at least you can ignore them with a clear conscience. Was he witty? For heaven's sake, Ludo, I was watching one of the masterpieces of modern cinema. How should I know whether the silent person sitting beside me was witty? She seemed to have made a recovery from Carp World. The project had sent her international cricketer, which she said was not too bad. I taught her to play picket. I taught everyone at Bermondsey Boys Junior Judo to play picket, and soon everyone was turning up half an hour early to play picket before class. I beat Sibillo two times out of three, and everyone else nine times out of ten. I would probably have won ten times out of ten, but as Zegedi has said, there's quite a high element of chance in the game. I looked for chances to proclaim myself the son of the Danish ambassador, but none presented itself. Or, I could be the son of a Belgian attaché. I am the son of the Belgian attaché, I murmured. Release this man, my fathers the Swedish DCM. I got a book on bridge out of the library. Saghetti said he would take me to the jockey club when I was 21, but I thought if I got really good at the game, he might settle for a mature 12. There is a jockey club in England but the jockey club is in Paris and I am hoping he meant the French one. I found out what a revolving discard is. When you can't follow suit and want to tell your partner which suit to lead with if he wins the trick, you play a low card in the suit above the desired suit or a high card in the suit below it. So a low diamond means clubs, a high diamond means hearts, a low heart means diamonds, a high heart means spades, and so on. Now that everyone at judo knows picket, I'm going to teach them bridge and get some practice. I thought I was beginning to get the hang of this. I had started by picking the wrong kind of father, but now I knew what to look for. I could build up a collection of 20 or so. I felt ashamed, really ashamed, of all the years I'd spent trying to identify the father who happened to be mine instead of simply claiming the best on offer. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11am Central. This episode featured Helen DeWitt, author of The Last Samurai, and Some Trip, both out now from New Directions. This episode originally aired on October 27, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive, for more information on I 94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpin'radio.com.